from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Hear now these words from the psalmist. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the desolate pit out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Happy are those who make the Lord their trust who do not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after false gods. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. Were I to proclaim and tell of them, they would be more than can be counted. Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, here I am. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. See, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O oh Lord. I have not hidden your saving help within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and of your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Do not, O oh Lord, withhold your mercy from me. Let your steadfast love and your faithfulness keep me safe forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before we turn to our uh, second text, let me just uh, welcome uh, a good friend who's a pastor who's on sabbatical. Uh, he and his wife, who's also a pastor, Reverend Tim Hart Anderson, his wife, Reverend Beth Hart Anderson. Just re I know this, you don't want me to do this, but just raise your hands. Right there, right there. Thank you. Uh, Tim is the senior minister of the Westminster Presbyterian Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And why I want to recognize him is that when I was on my sabbatical, I went to Minneapolis as part of the work around the campus master plan. They just finished a seven-year project that uh, transformed their congregation. Uh, they're right on Nicolette Street, their version of Peachtree Street, and had a vision uh, and had a boldness and had, uh, had resources meet that vision in such a powerful way that not only did I go out there, but our campus master planning team in October went out there. And Tim and Beth, thank you for your hospitality of our folks who've been part of this process. We're so grateful for that generosity that you've shown us over these last several months. And welcome to worship this morning. Thank you. Our text this morning is part of the lectionary cycle. It's uh, John chapter 1, verses 29 through 42, page 86 in the Pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along. Since the beginning of January, we have been thinking around the themes of discipleship. We talked about the epiphany and talked about when the Christ child is revealed to us that it requires us to travel another road. Last week, we talked about the baptism of Jesus. 
hearing our own worth and what was declared to Jesus and also hearing our invitation to be a partner with God in the work of the kingdom, that we're co-laborers, that we're collaborators with God. I said last week toward the end of the sermon that these texts that are set before us in the early part of the year as we start a new year are all about following Jesus, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple of the Jesus that we meet in Scripture. So once again, John the Baptist is on the scene, and once again, we hear an invitation from Jesus to follow. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who had heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You are, call, you are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open this ancient word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, every Sunday morning, right at 9 a.m., my phone flashes a notification. I didn't program it this way. It just happens by default every Sunday morning at 9 a.m., right as I'm about to give the welcome and the announcements at our middle service. And if I open up that notification, what it will tell me is everything that I have looked at online and how much time I have spent actually looking at it. It's the analytics of my screen time from the previous week. And much of my quote-unquote looking, what the analytics will tell you, that much of this looking actually has 
a real substantive purpose. For example, I'm looking at the ESPN app for a box score or looking for an injury report for today's football games, right? Or I am on open table trying to get a restaurant for date night. Or I'm on Disney Plus watching the latest episode of The Mandalorian. I got some young laughs out of that, yes. If you don't know what it is, ask someone younger. They'll tell you. Or I'm on my banking app, right, paying a bill. But the analytics will also reveal to me how much of my screen time is actually aimless. How much of it is just simply random. How much of it really doesn't have any purpose behind it, right? Scrolling through social media feeds, not looking for anything in particular, just looking. Scrolling through news feeds, not looking for anything in particular, just looking. Scrolling through YouTube videos, not looking for anything in particular, just looking. You know, my, my spiritual life, my friendship with God, my following of Christ has symmetry, I think, with this uh, illustration. There are times in my spiritual life when I know exactly what I'm looking for. There's times when I know exactly where I must look, where my attention needs to turn. There are times in my spiritual life where I practice mindfulness, where I'm aware of what ought to occupy my attention, that there's purpose in the looking that I undertake in my spiritual life. But then there are times where I have no idea what I should be looking for. There are times when I feel like I don't really know what it is that I desire or what I want. Maybe this is true for you. Maybe you resonate with this at some level, that there are seasons in life, that there are days in our spiritual existence, that there are days in our Christian faith where we have a hard time answering the question that Jesus asked those would-be disciples some 2,000 years ago, what is it you're looking for? What is it that you actually want? What is it that you desire? What is it that you're after? And frankly, some seasons of life, I don't know. I don't know what it is I'm, I'm after. I don't, I don't know how I'm feeling. I don't know what it is I, I want. I don't know what it is I'm, I'm going after when it comes to who I'm called to be as a human being at this time and at this place in this world. And there's part of me that recognizes that there's a lot of company in that boat. There's a lot of company in that boat. And I think the followers of John the Baptist have a seat right next to me. Because when Jesus asked, what are you looking for? When he came to them, the Son of God, this one declared to be the Lord, the Savior, the righteous one who would put the world to rights. When this rabbi, when this teacher engages them and says, what is it you're looking for? They did not respond with an answer like, I'm looking for inner peace. Or I'm looking to be healed of my cancer. 
or I'm, I'm looking for some forgiveness, or I'm looking for the Messiah, or I'm looking for justice, or I'm looking for the world to be made right. I'm looking for Roman occupation to end. There's nothing of the sort that is spoken by these would-be disciples. Instead, they respond to Jesus' question with another question, and it's kind of a random one. It's almost like it's a filler answer to avoid the fact that they're not quite sure what it is they actually want. What are we looking for? Um, well, uh, where are you staying? I mean, literally, that's, that's what the text says. It says, where are you staying? Now, I, I tried. I went to the Greek. I, I looked at this word staying. I thought maybe there's some spiritual, deeper meaning behind this word that I'm missing. And it's some uh, sort of deep, profound question that these would-be disciples are asking. But the Greek word simply means, where are you sleeping tonight? Literally, the place the pillow, the address. Where are you staying? The Son of God says, what are you looking for? And they say, where are you staying? It feels off. Doesn't it feel off a little bit? To me, there's something that's missing. And maybe what's missing is, is what they really want. Maybe they don't know. And, and I know what that's like. Maybe you know what that's like. When you're in prayer, when you're in a conversation with the community of faith, when you're asked this pointing question, what is it you're looking for? What is it you're desiring? And deep down inside, you have no idea. And you say, where are you staying? Because you can't access it. You don't know. You're not quite sure. Sometimes we, we don't really know what it is that we're after. Our older son, Johnny, is uh, a junior in high school, and he's just begun in recent months, the, the college search process. Some of you uh, know exactly what that's like. You're living it right now. And, uh, and some have a memory of what that was like for your own children or for a uh, grandchild. And so for those going through the season, those who have a memory of it, you, you know that much of the process is trying to get at what the child wants out of a potential school. Right, so much of it is asking questions like, what size school do you want? What kind of majors do you want? What city or town do you want it to be in? What extracurricular activities do you desire? Parents or grandparents ask, what kind of financial aid is available from school to school? And all of these are important questions that you have to ask that help uh, give clarity to the decision, right? All of these variables, as you start to put it on a spreadsheet or start putting it in your mind, you, you start to get a sense of what it is that, that you want, and you go after that particular school. It brings clarity. But sometimes, and we've already seen this with our own son in, in, in small ways, sometimes a student will show up on campus, and maybe you've had this experience. They'll show up on campus. They'll know nothing about the school that they're visiting. They don't know its history. They don't know necessarily what it offers. They don't know what they're looking for as they're coming to visit this particular, this particular school. And they show up, right? They show up on campus and they see something or they experience something or they meet someone who tells them the story of how they ended up in the, that university and all of a sudden this clarity comes to them. All of a sudden they say, yes, that's what I want. That's what I want. 
See, sometimes you have to see something. Sometimes you have to experience something to know that you actually want it. Sometimes you have to see it with your own eyes to know that's exactly what you've been looking for. It's not just with colleges, right? It's also with relationships. I mean, think about all the relationships that you are in over time. The ones that gave you some clarity as to what you don't want in a partner or in a spouse. And then perhaps when you, when you meet that person, that, that person, that love of your life, that partner, that spouse, and, and you say, this is the one I've wanted all along and I didn't know it until I met them. Or it's like a job when you're coming right out of graduate school and you're trying to figure out where to work, coming right out of college, coming out of high school, entering the workforce, and you're not quite sure, and you show up and you meet the person interviewing you, and you're like, I didn't know I wanted that in a boss until I met my boss. I didn't know I wanted that in, a, in my employment until I saw what was possible. Or maybe it's the first apartment you ever rented or the first house you ever bought. We, we work that way. Sometimes we don't know what it is we want until we actually see it. And we say, yes, that's what I'm looking for. I believe that that truth is central. It's at the heart of the way John tells the gospel story. Because when people come and see Jesus in the gospel story of John, when they see who he truly is, they begin to know what they want. It becomes in focus. And they see it and they say, I want that. I want that love. I want that justice. I want that forgiveness. I want that way of being human in the world. I want to follow him. In John's gospel, as people come and see Jesus time and time again, they recognize that is exactly what they want. They don't know it until they see him. They want to follow him. And I think the same is true for us, that the invitation is there to come and see. And when we're not sure of what we're looking for, there is something mysterious about God's grace as we really get connected to the person and work of Jesus Christ, that we begin to have clarity in terms of what we ought to desire and what we want and what it means for us to be human in the world. And, and the storyteller John, this gospel writer John, is constantly calling people to, to look and to watch and to see Jesus. He's constantly inviting people to come and see. That's where I've got the, the title of the sermon today, Come and See. And, and it's not just in the text that we've read this morning, although did you notice how many times the verb to watch or to look or to see is used. You've heard me say this from the pulpit before. If there's repetition in a scripture text that you're reading, pay attention. Pay attention. There's some key, interpretive key here, right? So many times is John talking about watching and looking and seeing, right? I'll just read a few. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and John testified, I saw the Spirit at his baptism. He, that is Jesus, on whom you see the Spirit descend is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And I, John the Baptist, have seen and have testified that this Jesus is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk, he exclaimed, look, here is the Lamb of God. And when Jesus saw the two disciples of John following him, he said, what are you looking for? And they said, Rabbi, where are you staying? And he said, come and see. 
Come and see. This is not an accident that John constantly is inviting people to look, to see, to turn towards Jesus' direction. In fact, the whole gospel of John is bookended by this. John 1 talks about the word becoming flesh and we have seen his glory. And then John the Baptist in the same chapter is saying, I have seen the Lamb of God. You know how many chapters in the Gospel of John? 20. It ends in chapter 20 and it virtually ends with Mary Magdalene. You know this story, coming to the tomb, the empty tomb, seeing Jesus. She runs back to those disciples who are scared and cowering, hiding. And she says what? I have seen the resurrected Jesus. Pay attention to the gospel writer John. He's inviting us to come and see Jesus. That's the trajectory and the arc of this story. It's all about seeing Jesus. Now, the question I think remains for us is what do we expect when we actually see Jesus? And I want to be very particular around this question and give a little bit of a, a foreword to where this question originates. And this is some of my own personal struggles with the amount or the, the volume, I should say, of Jesus's out there to engage with. There is a Jesus right now playing uh, in the fields of political power. There's a Jesus out there playing in pop culture. I call him the hipster Jesus. There's a Jesus out there that wants to maintain the religious status quo and guard against the institutionalization or maintain rather the institutionalization of the church. There's a Jesus out there that peddles in the spiritual marketplace. If you just pray the right prayers or give the right amount of money, God is going to bless you. We have to note the Jesus that we're actually coming and seeing. There's many out there to come and see, but the Jesus we're talking about is the Jesus of the New Testament. That's the Jesus I'm inviting us, that John is inviting us to come and see, that Jesus. And so what can you expect when you're wandering, when you're looking, when you're searching, what can you expect when you come and see this Jesus? And we could answer this question in a million different ways, and it would take a million hours to do it and give it the full due that it's worth. But what I want to do, just in brief, as we come toward the end of the sermon, just in brief, I want to elevate the four times that the gospel writer John actually uses the same stream, the same strand of words, come and see. Literally, word for word, it's used four times in the Gospel of John. And because I think this is so important, I want to elevate these stories and do it in a brief way because I want to give everyone a sense. I know there's people who have been in church their whole life. I also know there's people who've been here or here for the first time and are exploring who this Jesus actually is. But I want to, I want to give a perspective of, of who this Jesus that we're talking about truly is so the first example of the usage of come and see is in the text that I've already read for us this morning, right? When Jesus says, come and see where I abide, come and see where I'm staying. The second time come and see is utilized is just in the very next section of scripture. And you, many of you know this story. You're familiar with this story. This man named Philip, who's become a disciple of Jesus, goes to his friend Nathaniel. And he says to Nathaniel, this Jesus is the real deal. And what does Nathaniel say? One of the most infamous phrases in scripture. I preached about it a few years ago. He said, what good can come out of Nazareth? You remember that story? 
And what does Philip say to Nathaniel? He says, come and see. Come and take a look with your with your own eyes. And what he will see in this Jesus is that this Jesus upsets the conventional wisdom of the day, conventional wisdom that Nathaniel held that said there are some people out there, there are some towns, there are some places in the world that are no good. And when we come and see the biblical Jesus, the New Testament Jesus, the Jesus that we're introduced to, we recognize that that is utterly a lie that Jesus upsets the conventional wisdom of the day. These great reversals, if you wanna be first, you're gonna have to be last. If you wanna be great, you gotta be a servant. If you wanna live, you're gonna have to die. You're gonna have to sacrifice, you're gonna have to give up a piece of yourself. And so when you see this Jesus come out of this backwater, insignificant town called Nazareth, what you see is God turning the world upside down and inside out and saying, there is no place on the planet that is outside of my grace and my love and my call. That's the second time come and see happens. The third time the phrase emerges in another famous story in the Gospel of John in the fourth chapter. The Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, you know this story? At Jacob's well, they have this incredible engaging encounter and she goes back to her kin, she goes back to the townsfolk and she says that you have to come and see this Jesus. He knew everything about me. And in this encounter, when you come and see this particular Jesus in this particular story, what you see is a Jesus that is ready to break down barriers, that is ready to break down walls, that is ready to say that there is nothing that exists that will keep people from my plan of salvation and justice. Jesus in this scenario is superior to this woman, both religiously and in terms of his gender. But what he does is he levels the playing field when he says that you too are included in God's plan of salvation. You too can have the spring of eternal life. And so when you see this Jesus in the story of the woman at the well, you see someone who welcomes the outsider, who breaks down walls, who brings people on the margins to the center. And finally, the fourth time that you see this phrase, come and see, uh, written in the Gospel of John is from the chapter, uh, chapter 11. One of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. Jesus has a friend named Lazarus. You know this story? His friend Lazarus who's died. He's been dead for three days. He's in the tomb. And Jesus asked, where have you laid, that, laid Lazarus? And Mary and Martha, the grieving sisters, say, come and see. Come and see. And what Jesus does is is he gives us a glimpse into who he really is. He weeps, he mourns, he grieves, and he moves toward this place of death, this stone-cold tomb. That's who Jesus is. He moves to the tombs that we find ourselves in, the places of darkness, the places of death, both individually and collectively and communally in our city and throughout the world. And he moves toward them and he says in a loud, clear voice, Lazarus, come out. Almost saying to Lazarus, come and see new life. Friends, this is the Jesus of the New Testament. This is the Jesus of the scripture. When you come and see this Jesus, you discover what it is you're looking for. When you come and see this Jesus, 
You see him turn the world upside down and inside out. When you see this Jesus, you see him welcoming the outsider and bringing those on the margins to the middle. And when you see this Jesus, you see this Jesus show up in your places of grief, in your places of pain, where death is all around, speaking a new word of life, speaking redemption, speaking wholeness. This is the true Jesus. Pay attention to him. Come and see him and follow him along the way. May it be so in our time and in our living for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world. Amen.